Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of James. Book of James, chapter 2. The book of James, chapter 2. The title of this evening's message, The Perspective of Hypocrisy. The Perspective of Hypocrisy. That title in and of itself just sounds like it's going to be a really fun message, doesn't it? The Perspective of Hypocrisy. If there's one accusation of the church swirling around that, unfortunately, in my opinion, probably has some merit and some truth in it, it is the accusation that we are just a bunch of hypocrites. I hear that. All the time. Why would, I, why would I come to church? Well, it's just a bunch of hypocrites. Just a bunch of people that say one thing and do another. And the definition of a hypocrite is one who pretends to have virtues of religion or principles that they do not actually possess. But the evolved definition, the definition that is used today most commonly, has come to include... Someone who says they have a set of beliefs, but do something contrary to those beliefs. And so by that definition, someone who says they have a certain set of beliefs, and then does things contrary to that belief, well, I would have to agree that in any group of people, particularly in the church, we probably are oftentimes a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, quite frankly, we say that we come and we strive to be more like a Christ that his very word says we cannot accomplish that objective in and of ourselves. And so we're going to fall short of his glory. Therefore, if we say we are Christians and followers of Christ and we fall short of his glory, well, then we are, in essence, hypocrites at that point. The beauty of it is is that the God that we serve never said we weren't supposed to fall short. And so that's where I think the, the blurred line gets in there. They say, well, well, you say you're a Christian, but yet you sin. Absolutely, I'm a Christian, and yet I sin. But I have a Jesus who has forgiven me of those sins. Before I even committed those sins, he had already died for those sins. And so by the latter definition of hypocrisy, we, we will be hypocrites at some point. Now to this point in James, we've determined... That James is writing to the dispersed or scattered by the persecution, the brothers and sisters. So those believers who would have been part of the church, who've been scattered abroad as a result of the persecution that was so intense in that time. And as he writes to these believers, the book of James is a test of faith, you might say. It is, how are you living in light of the fact that you know Jesus? So you're scattered abroad, you're in a new land, you're in a place apart from from home, you're far away from the church, and how are you living your life? Are you still living your life as a Christian? And if you are not living your life according to these principles, why? That's the whole purpose of the book of James, that when we look at it, we would say, this is how a Christian ought to be acting, this is how I'm acting, so why is it? Am I not acting this way because I'm not a Christian, because I don't know Jesus truly? Or am I not acting this way because I am not focusing on the obedience of being a Christian and living my life in that way? And so we called this whole series through the book of James, uh, Faith That Works. Uh, And so so how do we put our faith into action? And how does it look uh, as we live it out? In chapter 1 we first saw 
that he introduced the topic of how we respond to our trials and how we respond to our temptations. And that'll be a, a proof in the pudding, so to speak. So a Christian will react to trials and temptations in a certain way, and a non-believer will act in a completely different way when it comes to trials and temptations. And so that was his kind of his first measuring stick that he gave us is how do you respond when things aren't going well, when you face trials, when you face temptations? Next, he kind of dealt with how do we respond in terms of when the word of God brushes against us. And so he said, as the word of God is presented, as you study the word of God, as you read the word of God, as you draw nearer to God, it's going to brush against you. It is inevitable, might I add, that the word of God is going to brush against you. Why? These are the ways of the Lord. We live in the ways of man, and they're always going to be contrary to one another. And so the word of God is going to brush against us. If it doesn't brush against us, we've either already arrived in heaven or we're not reading the word of God with the proper perspective. That's quite frankly the only way that the Word of God won't brush against you. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is going to cut us to our core and show us where we are not living according to the Word. And so how does a Christian respond to that? A Christian responds in humility. By prayer, God, make me more like you. Help me to become more what I'm supposed to be. Where a non-believer re responds in anger and, and haughty. And I don't have to live that way. And, and I don't have to do those things. And so he showed us, how do you live in trials and temptations? How do you deal with it when the word of God brushes against you? Because those two things are good ways to gauge where your relationship is with Christ. And so in James chapter 2 tonight, we start to look at how do you respond to those who come into your fellowship? How do you look at those who come into your lives and those who are introduced to you and into your fellowship? And if we would, please stand. We'll read James chapter 2. We will read... Verses 1 through 13 together tonight. Uh, we'll actually be on these 13 verses for the next two weeks. Tonight we'll probably focus more on 1 through 7, maybe 1 through 8. But we'll read all the way through 1 through 13 for the context tonight. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder... You've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs or judgment. Let's pray. Father God, God, we ask that you would reveal the truths of your word to us this evening. God, allow this letter from James under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit 
written to people thousands of years ago, Lord, allow it to penetrate our lives even today in this very moment and draw us nearer to you. God, test our faith. Test our faith, Lord God, that we would look to ourselves and look to you, Father. And it is in your precious heavenly name we pray and all God's people said. And you may be seated. So we see this introduction in verse 1, and James kind of starts it out, and he says, my brethren. It's again kind of this introductory term that James has been using. It's almost a way of, of James saying, let me remind you as I start this conversation, let me remind you as I, as I start into a new topic that the thing that I'm fixing to point out, well, it's not going to be easy to hear. I want to remind you that you're my, my fellow believers, my fellow church members, my friends. Uh, I'm, I'm fixing to tell you something that's tough, so let me preface it with this friendly statement. It would be like if, if I had some really bad news to share with you, instead of just coming out and, and slapping you with the bad news, I might put my arm around you and, and ask you how you're doing and, and remind you of our friendship and then, and then kind of hit you with the bad news, if that makes sense. So I want to kind of soften that blow a little bit. And I think that's kind of what James, as he transitions here, he says, My brethren... Because he's, he's really told them some hard things. I mean, think about what he's told them. My brethren, you're scattered abroad and persecuted. Make sure that you live by the faith. My brethren, the rich and the poor perspective of your possessions has got to be proper. My brethren, the word of God will be difficult to hear. It's got to be proper. And now he's saying, my brethren, I don't need you to live like hypocrites. My brethren, I don't need you to show partiality among the people that come in. My brethren, I need you to, to live like Christ would have you to live. And so he's kind of introducing he says hey you're my brethren you're my my friends you're my other fellow believers and he says do not hold the faith of our lord jesus christ the lord of glory with partiality and what in the world does he even mean by that and james is kind of introducing this principle and he's going to be writing about it for the next few verses and really for the next 13 verses dealing with it in some capacity and so he wants us to understand this principle that he's introducing in verse 1. In order to deal with that, I think it's important that we recognize that in this time, the majority of the church was poor. So the majority of the people that came into the church and were saved and, and started attending the church and started going through the church, they didn't have a lot of stuff from a financial perspective. They didn't have a lot of things financially. They were poor. When the church started in Acts, it says that the ones who had stuff sold it so that they could take care of the ones that didn't have stuff. And there were a lot more people that didn't have than that did have for a couple of reasons. Some had abandoned what they had in order to come to Jerusalem and see this Jesus and to be part of this church. But there were, there were for whatever reason, many of the people were poor. But not everyone was poor. Not all the church was without. There was the Priscilla's and the Aquila's and the Joseph of Arimathea's and, and all of those who had the land that they would sell. And so there were some that had money interspersed among them. And so James is starting to introduce this point that as you scatter out into these lands and as you start to gather in these new places with your fellow believers, there's something you're going to have to remember. You're not all going to be of the same status. You're not all going to be of the same area financially or socially you're not all going to be on the same level and we have to make sure that we don't esteem one group higher than the other because of their financial standing we have to make sure that we're not treating one group of people different than another group of people and when he says this i think we could 
turn this around a little bit if you would, if you would let me do this. Because I think this is one place where the translation to English loses a little something. In, in the Greek, when this is translated, it would be better to say, My brethren, in respect to persons, it would say that first instead of after. So, my brethren, in respect to persons, don't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the way the Greek is written, that first thing that's mentioned would be the primary point of what he's writing. He'd really want to give it the emphasis. And so we change it around to make better sense when we read it in the English. But my brethren, in respect to persons, so in other words, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, if you're going to say that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't be a respecter of persons. You can't be someone that shows partiality, is how some translations would say it. Acts 10, 34, Peter says, The truth I perceive that God... It's no respecter of persons. Romans 2.11 says, God is not a respecter of persons. And so what that simply means is that God is not concerned with anything a person brings to the table. Quite frankly, that's exactly what those verses mean. God is not concerned with what a person brings to the table and what they have in worldly terms. He doesn't look upon a person's riches. He doesn't look upon a person's standing. He doesn't look upon what a person might bring to the table. He doesn't look upon what a person might do to increase his kingdom if he adds him. Why? Because God doesn't need to increase his kingdom. His kingdom is already glorious. His kingdom is already all-encompassing. He's already the creator and the sustainer of everything. So he's not concerned with what someone can bring to the table. He wouldn't be concerned when when someone came in as a visitor of the kingdom of God. He wouldn't say, oh, that person they're going to increase the tithing when they show up. He's not concerned with that. He's no respecter of persons. God is not concerned with their ability or their talent because God can give the abilities and God can give the talents. He's not concerned when somebody walks in, he doesn't doesn't look and go, oh, there's the perfect Sunday school teacher. He says, I need a Sunday school teacher. I'll just make one out of that person that's not very good at it. Because God, quite frankly, is not concerned with what you bring to the table. He's concerned with who you belong to. And he's not a respecter of persons in that regard. He shows no favoritism. He is a whosoever will kind of God. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's all that God is concerned with. Whosoever shall call upon my name shall be saved. Nowhere in Scripture does it give any like prerequisite list that you have to go through before you can call upon the name of the Lord. It doesn't say that you come in with last year's 1099. It doesn't say that you come in having done anything before you got here, having, you know, hell married three times and confessed your sin to the priest. It doesn't say you need to do any of those things. It says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God is not a respecter of these earthly things that we look at. God is not concerned with those things. But we are, aren't we, if we're being honest? God is not concerned with those things, but sometimes we are. And that's why James is pinning this letter. That's what he's trying to remind us of. Sometimes we find ourselves showing partiality to this person or that person because of our opinions Or because of our thoughts about that person. And oftentimes we form those opinions and thoughts before we ever know who they are. We make our decisions oftentimes before we've ever spoken a word to this person. We make our decisions sometimes based on what they used to be or what we heard they were or what they may be. 
Never taking the time to get to know what they are. But more importantly, never taking the time to recognize whose they are. Because when it comes to the kingdom of God, it is way more important whose they are than who they are. Because if they're a child of the one true God, they're, they're, a, they're a joint heir with all of us. And who are we to place ourselves above anybody else who's a joint heir with Jesus? My friends, it does not matter who or what, how they smell, what they look like, or anything else. If they're a joint heir with Jesus, they are a child of God. And we should never find ourselves showing partiality to one group or another. That, that is the perspective of hypocrisy that James is talking about. Because God is no respecter of persons. Everyone is the same. That, that beautiful children's songs, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. How true is that? We could add a new verse. Rich and poor and smelly, stanky. I'm not saying you shouldn't take a shower before you come to church. But I'm saying if you can't got a shower and you come to church... It's not our position to look down on them for that. We should never judge a book by its cover. Maybe as a church, it's our responsibility to provide them with running water so they don't smell so bad next time. But on a serious note, God is no respecter of persons. God has saved just as many people underneath the bridge, homeless, as he's ever saved in a palace. Because God is no respecter of persons. And if we are the body, then we have to look like God. Think about that. If we are the body, then our call is to look like God. And if our God is not a respecter of persons, then guess what we are called to be? Someone who is not showing partiality to one group or another based on anything. All that's supposed to matter to us is this. Do you know Jesus? And if you don't, can I tell you about Jesus? That's all we should be concerned about when somebody walks in the doors, when we come in contact with somebody. Do you know Jesus? Can I tell you about Jesus? That's it. That should be as complicated as it gets for us. Look with me at verses 2 through 4, though. Look with me at verses 2 through 4. He kind of points out this principle that he's talking about, and then he gives us an example. And I love when I read this because I don't know if you guys do this, but so many times I do this because I tend to think more highly of myself than I should. I hear a word from someone. I hear some advice from someone. I hear a word from the Lord sometimes. I hear a, a preacher preach through a sermon. I, I hear something come up. And immediately I start to think, yeah, that's right. They need to get that mess straightened out. They need to fix what's wrong with them. I don't know what's wrong with them, why they ain't already fixed that. They ought to done figured it out. And James kind of knows that that's our tendency, I believe. The Holy Spirit inspires James. He's like, hey, don't be a respecter of persons. And he knows that the natural tendency of the believer is to say, boy, I'm glad I don't show favoritism. So James says, but let me give you an example. And in this time, this is a very real example. And so let's look at verses 2 through 4 again. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel. Let's just stop there for a second. 
He says, in case, in case you want to not agree with me, I just want to point this out. If there's someone who comes into your assembly, and when he says assembly, he's referring to their group worship. It's, it's the word for synagogue right there. Someone that comes into your, to the place where you're gathered to worship that has on the fine gold rings and the fine clothing. Now, this guy would have been noticeably wealthy in this time. In that time, it was very much customary that people would wear rings on every finger except the middle finger. And so they would wear all these rings all over their hands. But what was not normal was for someone to have even a single gold ring. A gold ring was a sign of status. And so if you had a gold ring on, you had some money, you had done something to get that golden ring. And so rings were really kind of a status symbol in that time. And so this guy not only had a gold ring, but James is saying someone comes into your assembly with many gold rings on. And so immediately when that person came in, you would go, oh my goodness, that's a wealthy, wealthy person. He's got many gold rings. In fact, in that time, there were merchants that would rent gold rings. So if you were going to an event and you needed to look better than you look, you'd rent some gold rings, wear them to that event, and then take them back because you couldn't afford to buy them, but maybe you could afford to rent them for a few hours. And so here comes Mr. Ringman in the splendor of all his rings strolling in. And it says that he has fine apparel. That word literally translates flashy apparel. And so this man is obviously wealthy. His clothes, his rings, his just whole demeanor radiates. I am an important person. I have a lot of money. And he's coming in to the church service. It would remind me if someone walked into, or wouldn't walk into our service anymore, but they drove into our service and we were standing on the front porch and we saw that as they pulled into the parking lot, they were driving a Rolls Royce or a Lamborghini or a Porsche or something of that nature. And that person would wheel into the parking lot and they would hop out and he would have a custom Italian suit on and he would have rings on. His, his, his spouse would get out and she would have the diamond rings on and a very fancy dress and they would walk in the front door and immediately just from looking at that person, you would make a couple of assumptions. Now some of you would make the assumption that you don't like them, but immediately some of you would make the assumption they had money. If they bought the fancy car, they bought the fancy clothes, it would just bear out witness to think that they could probably afford to buy them or they had good credit, one or the other. But either way, they would have the fancy stuff on. They would have the appearance of someone who was rich. And that's what this person that James is talking about is. Someone that walks in and is obviously wealthy. Just from looking at them, you can tell they're wealthy. But then he goes on to talk about somebody else. There also comes in a poor man in filthy clothes. So you got Mr. Ringman, and then you have Mr. Nothing. That word for filthy clothes tells us that he was most likely a beggar. That's kind of what that lends us to believe. He was a beggar. He didn't have anything. Most likely the clothes that he had on were filthy because he didn't have any more clothes. So he couldn't clean his clothes. That was all he had, and he had all he had on his back, bringing it into the church service. And can you imagine how he already felt? Just think about how that person would already feel. You got this dude with all the gold rings, and I got to walk in behind him or beside him or in front of him. 
And so we see this, this introduction that James gives us, and it's on the opposite end of the spectrum. You got one guy that's got everything, you got one guy that seemingly has nothing. And so imagine with me here, they gather at the announcement time. We're here, it's next Sunday morning, Brother Josh is up here fumbling through the announcements to the best of his ability. And all of a sudden we hear the back doors open, we turn around and look, and here is the wealthy man on one side, and here is the beggar on the other side. And this is kind of what James is calling their attention to. I want you to have this vision with me, because this is what James is trying to do, is point them to something they could relate to. Here they walk in together, and suddenly you go to the one who is wealthy. You say, oh, come here, come here, come here. Come here, take this seat. Now I want you to come on up here. This is the best. This is a better seat. You'll be able to hear better, and you'll be able to concentrate. Not everybody's going to crowd in around you. If you get back here on the back row, we're Baptist. We all like to get there. So I want you to come up towards the front where you'll have this section to yourself. And then you turn around and look at the poor man, and you say... Would you please sit down somewhere? You're distracting. Or maybe even you could stand right outside. Would you like to do that? Maybe you could just stand. Now, we don't imagine that here among ourselves in this century, but I want you to know that in this time, there's something very important being pointed out here. In that time, as they met in their synagogues, wherever they met for church, there would have only been a few seats up towards the front of the building. And so there were only a few pews or seats, however it was, and they were reserved for some of the more important people in the community, the, the leaders and, and some of that things. And then everybody else would have basically stood for church. So you could imagine if you had a long-winded preacher and you were standing for the entire church service. If you didn't want to stand, you could sit, but you kind of sat towards the front by the seats that were there so the people behind you were standing so you could see too and you'd kind of be sitting at the feet of the important people who had the chairs. And so literally the picture that James is painting here is that if you go to someone who seems important and looks important and you come in and you would usher them into a seat and you would look at the beggar and say, could you sit at his feet or could you sit at my feet or maybe you could just stand up, I don't really care what you do. I don't really have any concern with you or what you do, but I want this wealthy man, I want him to have a comfortable seat. And verse 4 points out to them, if you do this, you're showing partiality. If you do this, you're showing partiality. And what is our example? Our example is Jesus, who is without partiality. If you show partiality, you're, you're judging and you have a vicious thought, an evil thought is the word that's used there. And so you're motivated to be like the world and cater to those that you think can help you. Your motivation has become carnal and not heavenly. Now, I don't believe truly that at Rocky Valley we have a tremendous issue with someone judging or mistreating some, someone because of the clothes they wear. I've seen what some of you wear, and if you do, you don't know fashion very well yourself. Boy, y'all let that just fall flat. I appreciate that. Must have put you to sleep already. We don't really have a big issue with that. I mean, I've seen people of all standings walk into the doors of this church, and, and I will commend you as a church. You love people pretty equally. You reach out to people that 
Maybe they look different than you do, or they look like they're wearing a different kind of clothing than you might wear. We don't really have, I, don't, I really don't feel like we have a problem with that here at Rocky Valley. We do a pretty good job of loving on anyone, no matter what their social standing. But I do believe in any group of people, we have to protect with open eyes against showing partiality. That means we don't favor this person. We don't favor that person because of their, their race, their creed, their color, their gender, whatever. We don't look at this person with favor. We don't look at this person and shun them aside because of something they may, may or may not be. And so we, we don't worry about what someone can bring to the table when we're making our decision on how accepted or loved that they are. Because if we do that, we're judging like the world. How does the world judge? The world judges someone based on what they can do for them. Think about it. When you go into a place of business, when you go into a group of people, what's the first thing people start doing? They start sizing each other up, don't they? What can this person do for my business? What can this person do for my bottom line? What can this person do to help me move forward? And if we start looking like that in the church, where we start to look at people and we say, what can this person do for me? What can this person do to make me more comfortable where I'm at? Even if we start looking and we start to think in our mind, I, <coughs> excuse me, I need to bring this person in because they can do this for the church. I got news for you. When we start trying to put the puzzle pieces together as to what we think people are going to do from the church, God will bring it tumbling down in a hurry and he'll say, I never asked you to build the church. I asked you to love the people. I will build the church. We're not smart enough to build God's church. We're smart enough to love the people that God brings into our fold. And when we start to look at people and try to twist them and turn them and show our judgment and our partiality above doing what God called us to do, we are playing a dangerous game that James says we judge with evil thoughts. We judge with vicious thoughts. In verses 5 through 7, we see James start to point out, and we'll kind of touch on it in closing this evening, and then we'll, we'll come back to it next week probably. But he kind of says, why would you do this? Why would, why would you esteem the wealthy among you? They're the ones who carry you to court. They are the ones who have oppressed you. They are the ones who have held you back. They've blasphemed the name by which you are called. The wealthy are part of the reason that you're scattered abroad to begin with. Why in the world would you want to esteem them so high when they are the very group that have caused you so much trouble? What matters is not finances, but what matters is that Jesus is the one who gets the glory. And he has no concern for their finances. And so he says, it really doesn't make any sense why you would show partiality to the wealthy. They've caused more trouble for you than the poor ever did. Why wouldn't you esteem the poor? They are usually the ones chosen by God to do great things. And so what it matters is when we make it like anything else, we're not being like Christ. And so that's James's perspective here in these first 13 verses. We're going to see this as we go through this over next week as well. We cannot show favoritism. We cannot show partiality because when we do, we are not being like Christ. And that is a test of our faith. How do we respond when people are brought into our lives? How do we judge them? How do we accept them? How do we love them? And that is a mark of a Christian and how you love others regardless of what they bring to the table for you. Let's pray. Father God...
God, I thank you so much for another opportunity to worship you. God, I thank you for a book like James that we have to look at and we have to ask ourselves, am I living according to your word? Am I living according to what I should? God, do I face trials the way that I should? Do I face temptations the way that I should? God, do I hear your word the way that I should? And God, do I love others the way that I should? And if I don't, why? God, if I'm not living according to your word the way that I'm supposed to, God, would you change me? So God, in this house tonight, I ask that you would do that for your people. That if someone has a need, a burden, a concern, you'd give them the courage and the conviction to bring it to your feet this very moment. And it's in your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for joining in. We sincerely hope that this has blessed you in some way. If you have any further questions, feel free to give us a call or check us out on the web at www.rockyvalleybaptist.org. Thank you and have a blessed day.